I came up here and I mentioned last week in the announcement for our Advent series that my family, what we decided to do as a tradition is go to the Phoenix Zoo Lights. Let me tell you, the Phoenix Zoo does a wonderful job. If, if you haven't been, you should go. They do a wonderful job in lighting up an already lit up Phoenix skyline with a marvelous, wonderful array of lights. Every exhibit that you walk by, you'll see light creations of either the animals themselves or saguaro cactuses, barrel cactuses are lit up. And you can even walk through tunnels of light with flashing and pulsating lights that are synchronized to music. It's a spectacular sight to see. Now, as we were walking and as I looked at our daughter's face, the thought dawned on me. Now, this isn't a brilliant thought. It's not ingenious. It was just an observation. But when I looked at her face, I thought, light represents something bigger than ourselves. Think about it. When you're camping and you look up into the dark night sky, your eyes are trained to see what? The stars. You're, you're looking for shooting stars. You're not looking at the darkness. You're looking, your eyes are drawn to light that's emanating from the stars themselves. What we need this Advent season is for our eyes to be drawn to the light of the Gospel. We need our eyes to be drawn to the light of the Gospel. This morning, we're going to spend some time in the Bible. We're going to visit some passages of Scripture that will help to train our eyes to see how divine light has truly dawned upon our souls. And now, the good news is, darkness has no power over us. We'll begin with the prophecy of Isaiah. We'll see how he uses the imagery of light and darkness to communicate a theological message. It's a message about God and his people. Then, we're going to work ourselves backwards. We're going to go to the beginning. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll see how light conquered darkness in the creation story. From there, we'll move forward and we'll see the significance of how light and darkness both played a role in the Exodus. Then, we'll find ourselves in the New Testament where we receive the fullest revelation of light in the face of Jesus Christ. You may be wondering, why so much Scripture? Well, my goal in doing this is for us to see how light and darkness both play a significant role in helping us to understand who God is and in understanding who we are. We'll end our time by considering what Christ has done for us in sending His Son to this earth, which we refer to as the Incarnation. It's in this mystery, God the Incarnate Son has Himself come into our world to shed divine light upon deep darkness. That's the Christmas story what we celebrate. All of us at one time or another walked in darkness, but light has broken into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have every reason to celebrate. 
So let's begin our journey. Let's begin our time together by opening up to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll begin reading at verse 1. I know that Godfrey read this for us, but we're going to reread it. God's Word, so kindly addressed to us, people who once walked in darkness, reads, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. The prophecy of Isaiah, it contains some of the richest and clearest messianic prophecies in the entire Old Testament. In Isaiah 7, God reveals through Isaiah that a son would be born of a virgin, and his name would be Emmanuel, or God with us. Chapter 9 elaborates on the nature of this son and how he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Later on in this prophecy, Isaiah depicts this same son as a suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, elaborating on how Jesus would suffer for his people, all but naming the method of his execution. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're most likely familiar with these passages of Scripture. We love these verses. We celebrate these verses uh, on Easter, on uh, Good Friday, throughout Advent. And it's for good reason that we do. But to fully appreciate the messianic material that we find in Isaiah, we must understand the context into which Isaiah delivered this prophecy. People of God, they were being led by a king whose political prowess and his poor judgment would bring God's judgment upon Israel. Rather than trust in the Lord to defend them against their enemies, King Ahaz 
instead pursued a military alliance, and the people rejoiced in this. It wasn't as if there was a growing consensus that this alliance that King Ahaz brokered was a bad thing. The people, they didn't constantly call for King Ahaz's impeachment. Rather, the people were complicit in his political conniving. As Isaiah writes in chapter 8, they refused the water of Shiloh that flowed gently and instead rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. That's in chapter 8, verse 6. What these metaphors meant was that instead of trusting in God's ability to provide for and protect the nation, which he promised to do, they placed their hope in treaties and alliances. They had a greater confidence in the foreign kings to protect them than they had confidence of the king of the Davidic line to protect them. And they feared the kings of the surrounding nations more than they feared their one true king, God Almighty. What God does through Isaiah is he responds to all of this in an ironic manner. The very nation that King Ahaz attempted to ally himself with or to build an alliance with was the very nation God would appoint to destroy them. God was going to send the king of Assyria and the Assyrian army into Judah and overwhelm them with the Assyrian military's strength. We could compare Assyria's military to the German forces of World War II. In systematic fashion, they stormed through the likes of Belgium, Poland, France, in one swift campaign after the next. The Blitzkrieg of Assyria was a force to be reckoned with. All of this led the people into a state of utter darkness and despair. That's the setting we find ourselves in. That's the setting of chapter 9. The result of God's judgment, Isaiah tells us, is a people who are greatly distressed, living in the gloom of anguish, and thrust into thick darkness. Strong language. The recipients of Isaiah's prophecy were people who lived in rebellion against God. They were people who walked in deep darkness. This was, this was a time devoid of all hope and any light. So when we find ourselves coming to chapter 9, verse 1, we're witnessing what's the beginning of a great reversal. After judgment's pronounced, Isaiah transitions into a prophecy of hope. We see this when our English translation opts for the word but at the beginning of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isaiah's using the past tense when he references the people's anguish. It's as if Isaiah has teleported to the future. God has given him this image of a glorious reversal. And now the people's fortunes have been reversed. And Isaiah travels back in time and tells them, this is what God has already done for you. Isaiah's message is one of hope for a, de for a people that were deprived of hope. 
a people who lived in a war-torn land and in desperate need of peace. This was a people who walked in darkness, yet who now have seen a great light. A people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, but now on them has light shone. The darkness Isaiah is referring to is spiritual darkness. This people, just like we do today, needed light to shine into the darkness of their souls. Why? Well, we already touched on it a little bit, but this was a people who had exhausted every earthly effort to save themselves from their great enemy. They tried forging political alliances. They even tried consulting mediums and necromancers, which is witchcraft, essentially, and forbidden under the law of God, and all of it failed. What they needed was rescue. They needed a better king to save them than the king who now led them. Let me ask you a question. Let's bring it down a bit. How often do you try to do things your way? We have this board book at home called Jesus Saves, the Gospel for Toddlers. There's a page on this book where they're trying to, to prove the point that everyone's a sinner. Even toddlers are sinners. And it says, but wait, you want to be king. King of who? King of you. You want to be king, little one. You want your own way. You grab toys and disobey. <laughs> How often do we find ourselves doing the very same thing? This little book for toddlers puts its finger on an important truth about who we are. We all want to be king. When we put too much stock in living our own way and preserving ourselves like King Ahaz did, and refusing to live God's way, then we end up in spiritual darkness just like the Israelites. Our way always ends with darkness. His way is always marked by light. You see, light is significant. Isaiah, he's drawing upon this biblical imagery of light to show us that the darkness we were once consumed by, the darkness of our sin and depravity, could only be removed by an external force stronger than ourselves. We needed light. We needed the light of the Gospel to be shed on our hearts so that the darkness of sin would flee. And so what does Isaiah do? He prophesied of a coming king who would be the bringer of this light. This king would have all authority, which we read about in verse 6 of chapter 9, and he would sit on the throne of David not just for four years or two terms or a couple decades, but forever, signaling his eternal reign. We have this living king. And it's this coming king who would establish a kingdom that would never be shaken. He'd establish it in perfect justice and righteousness. The point here is we can't be king. Nor... Can we rely on the kings of this world to save us or sustain us? We need 
this came. What Isaiah was doing, he was picking up on threads that ran through the Bible. Moses once wrote about these threads long before Isaiah delivered this prophecy, which leads to our second point. There was evening and morning. Light has always held theological significance for the people of God. It's always been important. In the creation account, we're given the very first words of God when Moses writes, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. It isn't a coincidence that these were the first of God's words to be recorded for us in Holy Scripture. The point of the narrative of the creation account isn't to provide us with some detailed scientific explanation of how there could be light without the luminary bodies. It's not trying to do that. We're we're being given the theological rationale for light in this world. First, light was given so that mankind could see the glory of the Lord in everything God has made. Psalm 19.1 reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Second, how could God have made light without a sun or the moon to shine forth the light? Well, it's because God wanted us to understand that light comes from Him alone. There are no scientific, there's no naturalistic explanations of how all things derive their life from their Creator. It's from Him alone. Think of the miracle of conception. It truly is a miracle that babies are conceived. It's because God is the giver of life. Third, and what's most important for us to consider, is the creation account tells us something about the redemptive plan of God. After God said, let there be light, and he separated light from darkness, he named the light day and the darkness night. Then, we're told something interesting. It's easy to miss. There was evening and there was morning the first day. It's easy to gloss over this detail without asking ourselves the important question, why isn't it written there was morning and then there was evening? the first day. Wouldn't it make more sense to construct the narrative according to the way we actually live? I mean, most of us, I'm sure, wake up in the morning. Some of us go to work or school or stay home with the kiddos and we do our thing and then at nighttime we have our dinner, maybe watch a little Netflix, maybe read a book, then go to bed. In our estimation, that's a typical day. Now, I do understand that Maybe if you work at night, your rebuttal to that is, well, I work at nighttime. But historically speaking, and especially in the agrarian world before the Industrial Revolution, people woke up early in the morning and they'd go to bed at night. R.A. Finlayson, the Scottish minister, he aptly answers this question of why the narrative is constructed this way when he writes, God is at work as of old, in a progressive development of light. 
We remember that in the first creation, light came progressively. It was not the sun and its meridian splendor that shone. Indeed, there is evidence that the sun had come at a much later period than the light. But the light did come. But the light did come. It came to wax and grow. And it's significant that at every period in God's creative work, we read, and the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, and so on. Why should it be evening and morning? Here's his answer. It was God's pattern of workmanship. He is always facing the light and the rising sun. And if that was true in the natural creation, it's blessedly true in the spiritual creation. When God shines in our hearts with spiritual illumination, it is twilight with our souls. We see, though we see but dimly. Why would the narrative list evening first, then morning? It's because God works the other way around. God's always at work to dispel darkness. He's always redeeming and working to remove the darkness of this world. It's easy for us to think when nothing's happening that he just sits in the heavens and that he isn't much up to much because there's still so much darkness here. Friends, God is always working. As his creatures, we face the evening. We long to rest after a hard day of work and toil. But God's face is always set on the light because he's always working to remove darkness. Now this should provide us with hope. For those who are tempted to feel despair or to think, how could God be at work in this situation when everything seems so dark? Well, we know that God is always at work to dispel darkness. And the subtle Ordinary movements of life, like Rich has been preaching out about through Esther, God is always at work to dispel darkness. Think about that sin struggle you face time and time again. That pet sin that keeps popping up. How does this truth provide you with hope? God's always at work. God is always working to dispel darkness. Even if you recognize that the sin you're giving yourself to is in fact sin, God's at work. He's always working in you by His Spirit to shape you, to mold you, to conform you to the image of His Son. That's an effect of the Gospel in your life. He's always working. If you have family members, friends, or acquaintances that you really desire to see come to Christ. How does this provide you with hope? God's always at work to dispel darkness. As you share the Gospel and testify to who God is and what Jesus has done, God is at work. Last week in children's ministry, one of the questions that we asked the kindergarten through second graders was, how have you seen God to be amazing in your life? Or something to that effect. <laughs> Among the responses, one of them was, I see my mom reading her Bible every morning. In his little heart, God's at work. Through the ordinary means, 
that God gives us, the ordinary means of just cracking open a Bible, the Holy Spirit is at work. If you're a parent and it doesn't seem like the gospel is taking root in your child's life, take heart. Be encouraged. He's always working to dispel the darkness. Maybe it doesn't feel like God's doing much right now. Maybe it doesn't feel like God is helping you in your sin struggle. Or maybe it doesn't feel like God is moving in those people that you're sharing the Gospel with. But the creation story tells us something completely different. God's back is on the darkness. He's always facing the light and He's working to dispel the darkness. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, once wrote, the creation narrative is a story of redemption. Of the triumph of light over darkness. Like Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light has triumphed. But there is still darkness. Third point. And there was pitch darkness in all the land. This is taken from Exodus chapter 10. When we read the Exodus story, specifically the plagues that were administered through Moses during the people's Exodus, we see how the plagues progressively got more and more severe. The second to last plague was darkness that fell over Egypt. Now, it doesn't exactly strike us as a severe plague, right? Wouldn't you rather have a few days or even weeks of darkness compared to having frogs, gnats, and flies everywhere? No, I would. Wouldn't you rather have darkness instead of your livestock die or boils cover your body? Wouldn't you rather have darkness than hail pouring out of the heavens and destroying everything you own? Or lo locusts destroying all of your food? Why darkness? What's so bad about darkness? Because just like light symbolizes the light of the gospel, darkness symbolizes something too. Darkness and death, they symbolize the curse of Genesis 3. So when God told Moses to stretch out his hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, we're meant to make a connection to the covenant curses God had told the Israelites would befall them if they failed to do everything God had commanded them. Deuteronomy 28, verses 28 and 29 read, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in the darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you people of Israel were given promises if they obeyed and curses if they disobeyed. And these curses resembled the very same plagues that God brought upon Egypt during their exodus. So why is darkness the second most severe of the plagues? Because darkness is the last step before death. We know that the Israelites didn't obey. They failed to obey every one of God's commands. And so do we. 
Recall Isaiah's words. They were a people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. None of us could keep the law. Adam failed in the garden. The covenant people of Israel failed at every turn. Every king to have ever reigned over them failed. For death to be slain and darkness to be extinguished, we needed a better Adam, a better Israel, and a better king. We needed one who would become a curse for us, one who would experience darkness like no human soul has ever experienced. As Galatians tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. With every jeer, every taunt, every curse that was thrown his way, as he made his way up Golgotha, our king carried the curse that was ours to bear upon the tree which he was hanged. With every lash he received, every nail that pierced and plunged through hand and foot, our king became a curse for us. Prior to his death, Matthew tells us, there is darkness over all the land. Of this darkness, Nicholas Batzig writes, when the light of the world came into the world, he came to spread his redemptive light across the face of a world darkened by sin and Satan. As the physical sun is the only source of daylight, spreading its beams across the face of the earth, so Christ is the only source of light to the world. At the cross, it was as if the sun had set under the severe wrath of God that was upon him. But praise God, it didn't stay dark. But with His rising, the brilliance of His redemptive work has been accomplished. Sinners are now reconciled to their God. We sung about it. Like Isaiah says, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. Friends, we're now at peace with our God. Because Christ has borne our curse. Our last point. Let light shine out of darkness. As we've considered some of the Old Testament passages that shed the theological significance of light over darkness, some, some light, no pun intended, over that, we'll now turn our attention to a passage that helps us to understand the light we've received in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4.6, we read, For God who said that light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is using the same language of Genesis 1. He's alluding to the language Isaiah uses in Isaiah 9. The same God who caused light to shine out of darkness at the very beginning of time, and the same God who Isaiah prophesied would cause a great light to shine on those in darkness is the same God who gives us light at the beginning of our new life in Christ. 
all of us are a new creation. What better way to make this point clear than to use the language of the original creation account? Friends, every Christmas, every Advent season is a time we get to glory in the work that God has done for us in Christ. In His first Advent, Jesus left His eternal glory and was born in the likeness of men to save men through suffering the agony of death on a cross. You see, we cannot separate the cross from the incarnation. We can't separate those two. J.I. Packer, he shed some light on this when he writes, the crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led to the Son of God, that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. Stepping down from his eternal glory, leaving eternal fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit behind. The King of Kings was born to an ignoble family. The one who crafted the stars and set them in their place, lived in relative obscurity, learning carpentry as a trade, crafting tables and furniture with calloused human hands. The wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, He was wrongly convicted on all counts of blasphemy. Blasphemy against Himself. This was done in a Roman court. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God was slain so that sinners could enter into His glory. The One who was rejected and killed by men and who continues to be rejected by men and women and children has given men access into His kingdom and continues to offer free access into His kingdom. When we celebrate Advent, we must also celebrate the cross. This is what makes us who we are. We're a people who've been purchased, who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's for this reason Jesus was born. To ransom His people from captivity to darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. And what's more, we're promised a day in which all the darkness will be removed. This will be at the second advent. In Revelation, we read how the glory of God will be our light. There's going to be no need for a sun or a moon to shine because God's glory will light up His creation. That day is coming. We need only to place our hope and faith in Jesus until that day. But maybe you're here this morning and all this talk about darkness being removed doesn't mean much to you. You might think that it sounds quaint or antiquated. You might think everything in your life is fine. Everything is good. You'd prefer to just live in this supposed darkness. Or you might think that you live a moral, upstanding life and you have no need for light. 
On the outside, everything might seem good. might seem like you have it figured out. But everything isn't okay. There's a constant restlessness that accompanies living in the darkness. Christians, you know what I'm talking about. Before Christ, that's who we were. Pursuing gratification. Pursuing things to fill a void. Everything isn't okay. You need light. In this Advent season, today, you can receive this light. You can receive the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that's been revealed in Jesus Christ. Talk with someone you know who's a believer. Talk with them about what it means to live in the light. Or maybe you've tasted yourself and you've seen that the Lord is good. It's possible that you've been hanging on, you've been a Christian for some time, but due to the pressures of life, maybe the rigors of a busy schedule, and just the reality of living in a fallen world, you don't ponder upon the goodness and graciousness of God any longer. Maybe worse, you've given yourself over to the dark clutches of sin, finding yourself in a place spiritually you no longer want to be. Maybe you still prefer to hide amongst the shadows of your sin rather than live fully in the light. Be reminded there is hope. There's hope. If you even feel the slightest conviction from the Holy Spirit, there's hope. Turn to Jesus. This Advent season, we believers need to be reminded that light has truly dawned upon our souls and that darkness has no power over the Christian. The Incarnation. It's not some cute story that we commemorate by breaking out baby Jesus, dusting off our little ornaments and placing them on our fireplace mantle. No. And the Incarnation... We witness the ultimate display of humility and power. God made low and crushed for lowly sinners so we could have life. So as life gets hectic, as I'm sure it will for most of us over the next few weeks, planning gifts, planning dinners and hosting, ponder upon the graciousness of God and the goodness of His Son. We know that we needed a better King. He is our King of light. We know that what was true of the original creation is now true in the new creation, and that God is always working to dispel darkness. And we know that Christ, the eternal King, became a baby to live a perfect life of obedience. Only to become a curse for us. Reversing the curse we brought upon ourselves. And we know that light has finally and fully shone in our hearts through the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why we celebrate Advent. This 
is our holiday to celebrate as believers. Light has truly dawned upon our souls, and darkness has no power. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that your word would take effect in our hearts, that we'd leave comforted by the fact that you're always at work, comforted by the fact that your face is set toward the light and your back is on the darkness. You're always working to dispel darkness. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. I do pray that they would see their need for light. If that's today or tomorrow or next week, Lord, I pray by your Spirit, convict and draw people to the light. For those here that do know you, Lord, I pray that our greatest hope and comfort would be in knowing that light has dawned upon our souls. We have no need to fear. We have no need to worry because you're always working to remove darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.